Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Welcome to Exploring Missions, connecting mission needs with those equipped by God to meet those needs across the world or across town. And now the host of Exploring Missions, Bert Harper. Well, we're hoping you're having a great weekend and we're praying that God would open up opportunities for you to demonstrate uh, what God's calling is in your life in a missional purpose. Our co-host is Nathan Harper, and it's good for us to share with you today, and we hope we'll be a blessing to you, an encouragement to you, and also a challenge to you. Nathan, uh, as we look at exploring missions, our purpose is to equip people, help people, challenge people. We need to do all that, don't we? We do, and we want to look at God's Word to do that for us, honestly, and through the Holy Spirit speaking to each person. And today is going to be more of a Bible study that has missional implications and application. And so it's in Mark chapter 11 that we're going to study today. Mark chapter 11, verses 11 through 25. This is about Jesus and the temple and also Jesus and the fig tree. And maybe it's a familiar story to some people. Temple and fig tree. That's right. Good combination. (laughs) So what this text is not about, okay, we want to clear up some misunderstandings possibly. So it's not about Jesus having a bad day. He didn't get up on the wrong side of the bed, didn't lose his temper, right? And it's also not about us or giving us an answer to the question if Jesus is pro or anti-violence. It's not answering that for us. And it's not about Jesus trying to teach his followers a lesson on having enough faith, you know, like moving mountains, whether they be physical or metaphorical, right? So what is it about? Well, that's what we're going to try to dig into. And so it's going to be pretty in-depth. We'll try to move quickly. But the background of this, what was Jesus doing here in Jerusalem? So he was visiting Jerusalem and the temple to participate in the Passover festivities. Jerusalem at this time was overfull, beyond capacity. It's kind of like I'm from Alabama, or I live in Alabama, from Mississippi, but once or twice a year, the busiest airport in the country is in Alabama. It's the Talladega Regional (laughs) Airport, because everybody coming in to watch the races fill up that stadium and fill up the town, and really the whole county and that part of Alabama is over full. At this time in Jerusalem, probably over a quarter million people were in town, were in Jerusalem for the festival. And not all of them were, were Jewish. Not all of them were Jews from Israel and Judah. Many people came from all over the world. So Jesus knew that this was his last trip to Jerusalem before his crucifixion. Mark ten thirty three, right before this, he says, We're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So Jesus was going ahead telling them, hey, this is, this is the last trip to Jerusalem, at least before the cross. So his time had come at this point. And just one thing, to, as, we, as you read this, we're not going to read through the text, but as you're listening, at some point you can read through this text in Mark 11. But Jesus, what he was doing was 
enacting a parable. Many times he told parables, yeah. most of the time. Every now and then he would enact it, live it out. Feeding it. the 5,000. Yes. Break those feet. That's yeah, right. You're right. So what was kind of the the scene that Jesus was enacting here? Well, the king has returned is what he was showing the people. He has entered the city as the conquering hero, ready for his final victory and coronation. He is throwing down the gauntlet at the feet of his enemies as they plan their fatal moves. And at the same time, he's preparing his apprentices to become his new emissaries and forerunners of his new kingdom, which will one day extend to every reach of creation and include peoples from every nation as beloved citizens. So that's, I mean, it sounds grand and big in scope, and that's what Jesus was really really doing. It goes beyond just overturning some tables in the temple, and it goes beyond some figs on a fig tree. It's a grand mission that Jesus was here to accomplish. When you hear that, he's done this gradually. You was talking about he had told them he was going to go to Jerusalem, and this was going to happen to him. In Mark chapter 8 was the first time he mentioned that him going to Jerusalem. And on his way to Jerusalem, he would talk about it three different times. Yes. Trying to get those disciples ready for this big, yeah. big event that's taking place that is worldwide effect. Yes. Yes, that's exactly right. That's the big idea. You mentioned it. So even in the midst of Jesus' final week before he was crucified, he, he was equipping his disciples to make a global impact. And the way he did this was by demonstrating, remember he's enacting this, so he's demonstrating two key truths, two realities. The first reality that he's showing is the reality of finish and fulfillment. Now this is admittedly a little theological interpretation, missional interpretation, but in God's... That's a good combination. Yeah, we need to have a a biblical foundation for our mission. It really do, and the theological foundation is going to be missional. Yes. The whole purpose. That's right. So I think they run parallel. Yes. Yes. So the first uh, reality he's showing is finish and fulfillment. You could say it that way, finish and fulfillment. In God's kingdom, in his timeline, the Jewish religious system with its trappings of the temple building and priestly sacrifices were soon to be consummated in Jesus' own death on the cross, where he would say, it is finished, the law fulfilled and the sacrifice completed in Jesus. Now, the second reality he was showing was, you could call it faith and fruit. In God's kingdom economy, personal faith, where it's active, believing loyalty, putting your trust personally in Jesus, And what God is doing in Jesus, it will lead to fruitfulness. So faith, personal faith, will lead to fruitfulness. The fruitfulness that God desires is worshipers from all nations, not just Israel. So the dividing wall of hostility, we might look at that if we have time, the dividing wall of hostility has been destroyed in Jesus. Nathan, you were talking about to worshiper of all nations. That is a big divide through the entire Gospels and even in the book of Acts. How many times did Paul have to defend that God had spoken and was saving Gentiles? Mm. The Jewish community at that time, most of them have a hard time getting their mind around that. They they missed it, and we miss it too. I was fixing to say we we think we think the world revolves around me, you know, around my people or whatever that might be. That's right. 
So step by step through this uh, chapter, and we don't we might not have time to read every verse, but we'll take note of some. Verses 1 through 11 in Mark chapter 11 basically is where Jesus is demonstrating his kingship by riding into the city to the joyful victory shouts of the people, not stopping until he reached his destination, which was the temple. He marched right into the city toward the temple. Verse 11, um, it says um, in Mark 11, verse 11, he went into Jerusalem and into the temple complex after looking around at everything. Since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So he marched into the temple, a triumphal entry on his way into Jerusalem, and he got to the temple, looked around. He was inspecting for fruit. That's my opinion. He was walking around inspecting. Do you think he was saying, has anything changed since the last time I was here? Probably. You know, the fruit has has it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But because it was late, he went back out of Jerusalem uh, to stay at some friend's house in Bethany. All right. So on his way out, or actually the next day, he saw on his way back into Jerusalem, verses 12 through 13, he saw a fig tree, right? What does it say about the fig tree that he saw in verses 12 and 13? It says it was in leaf, right? It was leafy. <laughs> right. But there was no figs because it wasn't the season for figs. But it was probably springtime, so there were actually supposed to be at that time on that tree small buds of figs that people would snack on, and they were, ta- they were considered tasty, even though they weren't fully ripened figs. And so people would still eat that in... And so he was noticing that it had a lot of leaves, but no fruit. And it was kind of declared a bad tree. So what did he do to that tree? Verse 14. Yeah, here he says, in response, Jesus said to let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. Okay. Wow. So note the authority of Jesus as he spoke to the tree. Now we get to uh, verses 15 and 16 where he's inside the temple again. And so inside the temple, there were different courts, right? See if you can name some of them. What kind of courts were there in the temple? Well, you had the court of Gentiles for sure. I always think of that one first because that's where the money changers were. And it was the first one. It was the outside court where it was accessible to anyone. Yeah, And then you go further in, uh, the holy place and the inner, inner, inner circle was a Holy of Holies, right. where only the high priest would enter once a year. Yes. So it had its, each place had its own compartment. So there is a court between the court of Gentiles, the outer court, and before you get into the actual building of the temple where the holy place is, and it's called the court of women. Okay, so Jewish women and men could go into the court of women but Gentiles, men or women, had to stay out right. of the court of Gentiles. And there was a wall that was built separating the court of Gentiles from the court of women, the dividing wall. Paul writes about it. I mean, it's here in this court. Jesus is noticing. He's noticing two things. One, he's noticing that wall that separates foreigners, Gentiles, from getting closer into God's presence. presence. Yeah. We're going to come back to that in just a second. He also noticed in the Gentile court, that's where all the money changers' tables were set up. And it was crowded, and they were in there. We won't comment on all the things that they were doing. But so what you have is two things. You have 
two groups of people that were being kept from worshiping God. You had Gentiles who could go no further past, they couldn't go across the dividing wall. If they did, there was a sign that said you could be killed for crossing this wall if you're a Gentile. And then that's what they accused Paul of doing, bringing a Gentile in past that past wall, that right? Wall. And then there were the poor who were being taken advantage of by the money changers and were not able to make their sacrifices because maybe they didn't have enough money to, to purchase a, a, a clean or pure animal uh, for the sacrifice. So just in hearing that, what is your initial thoughts? That Jesus was noticing those two groups of people, foreigners, the poor, really they weren't given the access that God had desired for them to be able to worship him. Uh, missional, the gent- house, especially the court of the Gentiles, missional all the way. The court of women, it had that, but it was going closer. They didn't care about all that. They did not care about anyone else but themselves. And honestly, they were selling their souls and their purpose. They had completely lost their purpose. They were God's chosen people. Chosen for what? To be an example and to be a light to the Gentiles. And so here you have these money changers who were Jews. They were also, they're saying, okay, you bring your money from your country, you know, the Jewish yeah. people, you bring your money and you have to change Exchange it over it, into yeah. the temple money. And guess what? It wasn't a fair exchange. So right. they were taking advantage of it in every way. Yeah. So without getting too in-depth into that, let me tell you this. This is the interesting thing. Do you know the actual name of this wall, the dividing wall? It's called, and I'm, I'm probably not pronouncing it correctly, but in Hebrew, it's called soreg, soreg. Guess what that word means in Hebrew if you translate it? Fruitless tree. <laughs> okay. Can you believe that? And he just came from? A fruitless tree. Jesus was enacting the lesson he's trying to teach. He's saying, look, see this, notice this fruitless tree, guys. It's a bad tree. It's not going to have any more fruit from here on out. You walk into there, there's that wall called the fruitless tree wall. And Jesus is trying to say something here, I believe. Verse 17, important verse to read, Mark 11, 17. He began to teach them. Now, this is right after he... He got their attention by turning over the money changers' tables and running the animals out, not permitting people to carry goods through the temple. They were using the temple, the court of Gentiles, as a as a shortcut from one end of the city to the other. I mean, imagine that. Like, imagine cutting through your church parking lot to avoid a red light or something. That that would kind of be bothersome. Well, this was even this was even more bothersome. So right after Jesus put a stop to that, then he began to teach them. Okay, so they're listening to what he has to say. He says, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Wow. Panta ta ethne. One of Jesus' favorite phrases he would use in the Gospels. For all the nations. A house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a den of thieves. So what Jesus is saying here, he's actually quoting from Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah 56, verses 4 through 8, was a promise of God made that Jesus is is reinforcing that promise 
by being the living Word of God. But this promise in Isaiah was for Jesus to make sure that it was kept. Uh, This is uh, Isaiah 56, 4 through 8. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me and holds fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name. Better than that of sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I'll bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel says, Yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. That's what Jesus was doing here. <laughs> he was reminding the people, hey, God's going to gather through me, the Messiah. God's going to gather others, outsiders, outcasts, that are even not a part of the house of Israel, the household of Israel, but other, uh, it'll be the household of faith. Gentiles, the other nations will be coming to worship God in his presence. You know, the Jewish leaders who inscribes, they had to purposely ignore passages like that, Nathan. Yeah. It was obvious that the kingdom of God was bigger than Israel, and they purposely just said no. Well, talking about those religious leaders who ignored God's word, here's a passage that they probably ignored, and it was addressed to them. What does God say will happen to those religious leaders who don't repent? Jeremiah eight thirteen says this, I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the tree, and their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. And again, I think this is being enacted as a final warning, right? Uh, But also showing God's heart for all the nations. And Jesus is, is demonstrating this here in Mark 11. So I think this was the last straw for the threatened leaders. They wanted Jesus dead, and they wanted it to happen as soon as possible. All right, so he leaves the temple. And he goes back toward Bethany. What are they going to pass by? This is in verses 19 through 21 of Mark 11. What are they going to pass by as they go back out of Jerusalem toward Bethany? Well, they're going to see that old fig tree that was sitting there on their way in. Let's read what happens in verses 19 through 21. Whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. Early in the morning as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered, from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Peter's like Captain Obvious here, (laughs) Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. Isn't that like you've got a a day, one day period, maybe 24 hours from Jesus spoke the curse to the fig tree the next day. And there it was. It was barren, withered, and and dead. That, uh, it speaks loudly and clearly especially when you know, when you connect it with the temple. I, I doubt very few folks have done this, Nathan. Well, I think, it's, I think it's here for us to do because Mark is using a common literary technique where you have brackets. You have an event that happens in the middle, and you have 
a repeating event on either side. Right. So you pass by the fig tree, you go to the temple, and you pass by the fig tree again. And the point is, the fig tree is about what that action is in the middle. So the fig tree shows us what's happening with the temple. Because he had said uh, it's going to be torn. I mean, it is his body, but also the temple's going to be destroyed, too. Yeah, so we're not like Peter. We're not Captain Obvious where we notice this. But I think it's obvious probably to early Christian readers and hearers of this text. We've just, for centuries later, we miss it. But here's what's here for us to understand. The days were numbered for the temple, its corrupt leaders, and even the sacrificial system itself. Like the fig tree, it was leafy, looked pretty, but fruitless. It had the look of life, but in essence, it was withered and dead. Very soon, in just a few more days, things were about to change. Wow. And we know kind of the rest of the story. Now, the rest of the chapter has a lot of important things, and I just want to bring out a few things. I don't know how much time we have, but probably briefly, something important. So verse 22 uh, he talks about having faith in God. And so here's the thing. It's not what faith, it's who in God. It's not faith that is the main thing. It's who the faith is in. That's the main thing. So it's not in the temple, not in the religious leaders, not in the sacrifices made. It is about faith in God. I think Jesus is interested above all things in fruit. And he knows that only faith in God can bring about the kind of fruit in which he is interested in. And he's going to get to this in John on the in the discourse about the vine and yep. bearing fruit. Yep. That's so right. the last few days of his life had a lot to say about fruit, didn't it? Yeah. He he packed he packed a lot of lessons in and it was a lot about fruitfulness. Verse twenty three, changing a little bit from the fruit idea, but he talks about a, a mountain. Verse twenty three he says I assure you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Now, there's a lot here that we would have to cover to understand it fully, but just understand this. So the sea represents chaos, uncreated, unordered existence, like pre-creation in Genesis 1, verse 2. When Jesus says, anyone... He's also referring to himself. So in other words, Jesus is saying that he is deconstructing the whole religious system. He's going to break it down and rebuild it. He's going to move the mountain into the sea. Jesus is going to recreate and reorder how God is to be worshipped. It's going to be reordered around faith, personal faith in him. What it's always really been about from the beginning. Always. And so... It's what gets left out and lost when men focus on themselves rather than God. It's not another religious system Jesus is trying to set up. It's simple faith. It's simply asking in prayer, believing and receiving. It's simply forgiving and being forgiven. Now, more than a lesson in prayer, verses 24 and 25, he says, All the things you pray and ask for, believe that you have received them, and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. Jesus, what he's doing here, this is the missional kind of punch. Jesus is authorizing his disciples as his emissaries and ambassadors on earth. He's calling them to be his priests, 
standing between God in faith and the nations in prayer. So like a priest holding out God's forgiveness for sins, just as the priest has been forgiven himself. As Jesus reorders worship directly from the individual, from their heart to God himself, he is cutting out the middleman. Amen. The temple priests and the religious leaders who have tried to cut in on God's glory. And so the last section of Mark 11 through chapter 12 is about those confrontations of authority. Jesus' reordering of Yahweh worship means that any authority that the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders once had, is now being given to Jesus' own followers so that they can go and bear much fruit. So... A lot of in-depth interpretation and theology here, but like you said, that runs hand in hand. They run hand in hand. It brings it alive. It means more than just, it's not two different events. It's the same event with the commentary and the instruction that he was given. And so our purpose is to be fruitful. Yeah. Paul made it plain, did he not? He said, some will plant, some will care, but it's God who gives the increase. Yeah. But we're to be a part of that plan, aren't we, Nathan? I believe there's two basically specific applications or actions that we should take, kind of as a challenge, I think, for all of us today. First, receive forgiveness. That dividing wall of hostility is sin, <laughs> and that's been broken down by Praise Jesus. God. Amen. And we can have access as foreigners, even as Gentiles or Jewish people, all, all peoples, Men, women, people from everywhere can have access. The court of the Gentiles, the court of the women. That's right. Amen. We can have access to Christ, to God through Christ. That dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. We can receive forgiveness because of Jesus' sacrifice for sin for us. But the second is then proclaim that forgiveness as his apostles were sent out. We, as the church, are sent out as Jesus' royal priesthood. We're the church going on mission, proclaiming that forgiveness we've experienced. We can proclaim it in Jesus' name to the nations, to the people, to the poor. Wherever we go, we can proclaim that forgiveness in Jesus' name. Nathan, thank you for sharing this with us today. It is fresh. It is real. And you did a great job of theologically and missionally putting them together. And we pray that you who are listening would be on mission for God. Get your theology, your Christology down. It is Jesus alone who saves. And we've been forgiven that sin has been taken care of, and we need to share it with others. So stay on mission for God and tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ. 